This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Now, maybe you can't afford that full-size E30 M3 or that rare 71 Nissan Skyline GTR. And that's probably okay, because your garage is already chock full of other projects, and you've been turning so many wrenches, your knuckles look like they belong to a prize fighter. The last thing you need to do is muck about with another old car. And that's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars, from manufacturers like Amalgam, Auto Art, Mini Champs, and others. They stock 143rd scale and 118th scale offerings, from streetcars to race machines, from pre-war classics to brand spanking new cars, Model Citizen Diecast has something for just about every interest and price range. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com or check out their Instagram page at Model Citizen Diecast. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you, and thanks for being a part of the show, listening from places like Towson, Maryland, Mayfield Heights, Ohio, Woodstock, Illinois, Provo, Utah, Freeland, Washington, Montreal, Canada, Malaga, Spain, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and finally, Adelaide, Australia. Don't forget to subscribe, click that five-star rating, and if you're enjoying the show, Help me get the word out. Tell your friends about it and send them a link. By the way, I told you last week that I was giving away some Horsepower Heritage decals, and I still have some left. So if you want one, you can email me at horsepowerheritage at gmail.com. I won't share your data, and you won't get any spam from me. It's just my way of saying thanks for supporting the show. All right. So today's episode is called The Men Who Built General Motors. I've told you before that my goal with the show is to tell you about the people and the stories behind the machines. That's what these storytelling episodes are about. And to a degree, so are my interview episodes. But anyway, this is a story that I've been fascinated with for a long time. But it's not an easy one to tell. The early days of the auto industry were filled with cross-pollination and Darwinian struggle for survival. Companies came and went very quickly. At one point, there were about 1,900 automobile manufacturers in the United States. Most of them never got to market. So the twists and turns that took place can be confusing. But I think I've boiled it down. Now, most people will see a really, really old car, usually sitting in a static display at a museum, and they can't relate to it in any way. It looks like a toy or a wagon to them, and they wonder how anyone could have ever driven it. But once you get a sense of the human side of those days and how they were inventing the industry as they went, it comes alive, at least for me. And there's a resurgence of interest in brass era cars right now, which I think is super cool. So after you listen to this episode, the next time you see a really, really old car, it will seem more familiar and you'll probably appreciate it more. So with that, I hope I've done the story justice. And I hope you enjoy The Men Who Built General Motors, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Let's hit it. General Motors is one of the greatest industrial giants in history. When it was founded in 1908, there were at least 400 automakers in the United States. 
It's useful to think, though, about what transportation was like in 1908. There were very few paved roads, no reliable infrastructure like gas stations or auto mechanics. Some places you were lucky to find a blacksmith. And federal highway construction was still many years away. In fact, it would have to wait until after World War I. It had been only five years since the first transcontinental automobile trip, San Francisco to New York City in a Winton touring car. And that trip lasted 63 days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes. America, and indeed the world, still moved people and goods on land with steam locomotives or teams of horses. Sailing ships were still commonly used on the passenger and cargo lines, and the airplane was a brand new technology. By 1929, when GM had become firmly entrenched as an industry leader, the number of auto manufacturers had been whittled to just a handful. General Motors was later one of the linchpins in the arsenal of democracy during World War II. Their plants cranked out airplanes and tanks by the thousands. And even many GM subsidiaries later became well-known names. Allison, Champion Ignition, Delco, Detroit Diesel, Fisher Body, even Frigidaire. GM at one time had 50% of the American automobile market, and it was the first company to earn a billion dollars in profit. In 1953, General Motors President and Chief Executive Officer Charles Wilson went to Capitol Hill and sat before the Senate Armed Services Committee. It was conducting confirmation hearings to decide if Wilson should be the next Secretary of Defense. When he was asked if his General Motors stock holdings presented a conflict of interest, Wilson replied, I cannot conceive of one because for years I thought what was good for our country was good for General Motors and vice versa. The difference didn't exist. Our company is too big. It goes with the welfare of the country. Our contribution to the nation is quite considerable. And forever after, Wilson has been misquoted as having said, what's good for General Motors is good for America. The reason the misquote stuck was because GM was ubiquitous. It was perhaps the one company that truly influenced every sector of the American economy in some way, from defense to household appliances. Indeed, General Motors products were a slice of everyday life in America. Half the driveways in the country had a GM car sitting in them. But it all had to start somewhere. So in this episode, I'm going to take you back to a time in history when the car business was like the Wild West frontier, full of pioneers and idea men, claim stakers and bankrollers. Some men were all of these things, but none of them were afraid of the future. They were all busy trying to make their mark. And the GM story begins with one of America's largest automakers in the early days, Buick. David Dunbar Buick was born in Scotland and moved to Detroit at the age of two. Buick made his first fortune in, of all places, the plumbing business. He's the man who invented the process of coating cast iron in enamel, and every bathtub and sink made for decades used his process. It made him a very rich man. But before too long, Buick's interest in the internal combustion engine got the best of him, and seeing a bigger opportunity, he cashed out of the plumbing business. In 1899, he started a company to build stationary engines for agriculture, but by 1902, Buick turned toward automobiles. 
Things went slowly at first, and Buick only produced a handful of cars. But one of Buick's early employees and its chief engineer, a man named Walter Marr, had made a breakthrough. He perfected an overhead valve engine design. And this was a major technological advantage over the flathead or side valve type of cylinder head. It's a matter of fluid dynamics and thermal efficiency. In a flathead or side valve engine design, the valves are in the engine block to one side of the cylinder. They travel up toward the head when they open. This means that at least a portion of the combustion chamber is perpendicular to the piston crown which means that the fuel-air mixture, ignition, and flame propagation doesn't happen in the most efficient location, which is directly above the crown of the piston. All that gas flow and combustion has to travel sideways in order to force the piston downward on the power stroke. And then the gas flow on the exhaust stroke goes through the same meandering path to find its way out of the exhaust valve. But in an overhead valve engine where the valves are in the head and not in the block, the valves open downward toward the piston, and they are located at the roof of the combustion chamber, right above the piston. This means that gas flow, whether we are talking about fuel-air mixture or flame propagation or exhaust flow, is more efficient because it happens in more or less the ideal location. And that improves thermal efficiency, meaning more work is done on each power stroke. So Buick's valve-in-head design was a superior technology, and it was early to market. And it took years for other car makers to abandon their flatheads, mainly because they were cheaper to engineer and build. And for most drivers, a flathead was all they needed. Despite Buick's innovation, or actually because of it, the company was quickly in debt. Enter a man named William C. Durant. Remember that name. Billy Durant owned the largest carriage manufacturer in the United States, building 150,000 carriages per year, and he came to Buick as an angel investor. In doing so, he got control of the company, and by 1906, Durant had bought David Buick out, and Billy Durant was just getting started. Two years later, he founded General Motors. It began with a feverish pace of acquisition. Durant shrewdly realized he needed to consolidate the best technological developments and manufacturers in the industry. And he also realized he needed to offer consumers machines at different price points. But let's back up a bit. On March 1st, 1901, a fire broke out at a factory at 1330 Jefferson Avenue in the city of Detroit. This was the home of the fledgling Olds Motor Works. Nearly everything was consumed in the blaze, including 10 prototype vehicles. Some had been gasoline-powered, some had been steam, and some were even electric. The Olds Motor Works was pretty innovative, but now it was all a heap of ashes and slag. Only one prototype survived. Some workers had pushed it out of the building. It was a spindly little runabout a single-cylinder horseless carriage with two seats, tiller steering, and curved front-end bodywork, like the kind you see on a sleigh or a toboggan. And that became the car that launched Oldsmobile. Now, some historians seem to think that it was by mere chance that this little car was the only one that was rescued from the blaze. I tend to think that the curved Dash Olds, as it was called, was rescued precisely because the factory men knew it was destined to be the butter on their bread. 
After all, it was a simple, sturdy little automobile. No one is quite sure. But let's take a look at how it all began for Olds. Ransom Eli Olds was the son of an Ohio blacksmith and pattern maker, so he spent his childhood around tooling and manufacturing, and he learned how to forge and cast metal parts as a boy. His father later started a stationary engine factory in Lansing, Michigan, and it was there that Olds began to build experimental motor cars. At the age of 23, he built a tricycle carriage powered by a steam boiler, and by 25, he'd earned his first patent on a gasoline-powered car. By 1897, he'd begun to build automobiles, but they only sold four in that first year, and the company was in trouble. In came Samuel Smith, a Michigan mining tycoon. Smith knew the automobile was the way of the future, so he put $200,000 into the Olds Motor Works, which made him the majority shareholder. Now back to the little prototype, the Olds Curved Dash Runabout. It became the first mass-produced car in America, and it was built on an assembly line using interchangeable parts, two major innovations that reduced costs and increased reliability. It was America's first affordable car, and it became a sensation. By the way, the company had not been called Oldsmobile. It was the public that coined that name, so the name stuck. There was even a popular song, In My Merry Oldsmobile, about a young man inviting his sweetheart for a ride in his new motor car proving that cars and romance go back to the beginning. And the curved dash olds quickly became a part of popular culture. But unfortunately for Ransom Olds, that popularity was also a kind of liability. Remember Samuel Smith, the mining tycoon who bought the company? Well, Smith and his son Frederick didn't see eye to eye with Ransom Olds, who wanted to continue building an affordable car, but the Smiths wanted to move up market. And Ransom Olds had no vote in the matter. So, in 1904, he left to form the Rio Motor Car Company. Rio built touring cars and then became very successful with commercial trucks through most of the 20th century. But back to Oldsmobile. By 1908, it was apparent that the Smiths had miscalculated about moving up market, and that mistake had weakened the company to the point that Samuel Smith and his son Frederick sold out to, you guessed it, Billy Durant. Durant's next acquisition was a car company you've likely never heard of. And if you have, then you are a confirmed car nut. The car was called the Oakland. The Oakland car got its name from Oakland County, Michigan, where the company was founded in 1907. Their factory was in the city of Pontiac. Within the first year, Billy Durant had purchased half the interest in the company, and Oakland became one of the nameplates under the General Motors umbrella. They were solidly built cars, and they even had a V8 for a brief period in the teens. Oakland was eventually the second name in the GM price ladder, just above Chevrolet. In the mid-20s, GM's board figured out they had a market gap between each of their brands, and they filled that gap between Chevrolet and Oakland with a new nameplate, Pontiac. But Pontiac sales soon eclipsed Oakland, and the Oakland brand was discontinued. Would it surprise you to know that the crown jewel in the General Motors empire was actually founded by Henry Ford? Well, in a roundabout way, that's exactly what happened. In 1901, Ford was trying to convince potential investors that he could produce a reliable automobile, and he decided the way to do it was to go racing. So on a cold October morning in Gross Point, Michigan, he found himself in a field of 13 cars in a sweepstakes race. 
but because of various mechanical problems, only three cars actually started. One of those cars dropped out, and then there were only two. It was 38-year-old Henry Ford driving his own car for the first time in a race against 41-year-old Alexander Winton in a car of his own design. Winton was the favorite. He was a skilled driver in a car with nearly triple the power, but somehow Ford managed to stay in the race. In those early days, it wasn't so much about speed. Endurance was often the winning factor. And so it was that Ford's car proved to be more reliable because Winton sputtered out with mechanical problems and Ford won the race. That was apparently enough to convince Ford's money men and with their backing, he organized the Henry Ford Company. But they quickly grew impatient with his pace and seeming lack of urgency. He was probably ill-prepared at that point to build a dependable production car in any great number. The money men wanted to cut their losses and liquidate. And the next thing Henry Ford knew, they had thrown him out of his own company and replaced him with a man named Henry Leland. Henry Leland was a machinist, one of the most skilled anywhere. He'd learned the trade at two pioneer companies, Brown and Sharp of Providence, Rhode Island, the foremost American manufacturer of precision machine tools, and the Colt's Patent Firearms Manufacturing Company of Hartford, Connecticut as in Samuel Colt, the inventor of the revolving pistol, one of the guns that won the West. It was in the Civil War era at these two companies that Henry Leland learned precision manufacturing and the importance of interchangeable parts. So it was with great confidence years later that in August of 1902, while he advised the money men at the Henry Ford Company on how to liquidate, he instead told them, he was the man who could turn things around. The first thing Leland did was to rename the company in honor of the French explorer who founded Detroit, Antoine de la Motte Cadillac. He even used Cadillac's family coat of arms as the badge for this new automobile. Leland envisioned Cadillac as a superior motor car from the start. It was to be a machine of precision and prestige. And they aimed to prove it in England in 1908 when three Model K Cadillacs were entered to compete for the Dewar Trophy. You've probably never heard of this event, but you know the name behind it. Thomas Dewar was a Scottish whiskey baron, a sportsman, and a master of publicity. He made Dewar's a worldwide brand and sponsored sporting events like bicycle races and football matches. But he was also an automobile enthusiast, and the Dewar's Trophy was no mere publicity stunt. It was and still is administered by the Royal Automobile Club. It's not an annual event. It only happens when there's significant technical achievement. And Henry Leland's Cadillacs were about to face a daunting challenge for any car in 1908. The three cars were driven from a London showroom to the Brooklyn's racing circuit. Once at Brooklyn's, the cars each lapped the track 10 times. They were then completely dismantled, and the parts were mixed into a single pile. A number of the high-precision components were pulled out of the pile and replaced with parts from the service department of the London Cadillac agent. It took a pair of men just under two weeks to reassemble the cars from the mixed-up pile of parts. All three cars were then driven 500 miles each. The only failure in this whole affair was a cotter pin. Then one Cadillac was locked away for several months until it faced a final trial, the 2,000-mile reliability run. And the Cadillac won. 
These grueling tests and Cadillac's victory earned it a new slogan, the standard of the world. Seeing a winner once again in stepped Billy Durant, acquiring Cadillac in 1909 and making it the flagship nameplate at General Motors. Durant had set the stage for an automotive empire, but the rapid pace of all these acquisitions had overleveraged the company. And it wasn't just the car makers, 13 in all, that Durant had scooped up. He bought paint companies, electrical parts companies, tool makers, and all sorts of other suppliers. And just like David Buick, Ransom Olds, and others, now Durant faced the same sheet of music. He was forced out of General Motors, the company he'd created. You could say he was out, but not down. Within a year, Durant partnered with a Swiss-born racing driver and engineer, one of three car-crazy brothers who had joined the Buick racing team. His name was Louis Chevrolet. Louis, along with his brothers Arthur and Gaston, were early Indianapolis 500 drivers and later developed their own speed equipment. Louis was well known among motor racing fans, and Durant saw the obvious marketing possibilities of the Chevrolet name. So the new partners secured several investors, and Louis began to design the car as chief engineer. The result was a fairly low-slung touring car, at least by American standards, and it had a six-cylinder engine with performance and quality that could rival more expensive makes. But by that time, the Ford Model T had come to market, and it was a runaway hit. In 1909, Ford built just over 10,600 units, and production doubled every year. A Model T soon left the assembly line every 90 seconds. So Billy Durant wanted to go head-to-head -head against the Model T for the low-priced market. But Louis Chevrolet was a real enthusiast. He wanted to build exciting cars that could perform. The two began to argue about the direction of the company. And Chevrolet decided he'd rather go racing and build what he wanted. So by 1913, he sold his shares to Durant and left the company. And here's the next twist. Billy Durant then managed to exchange Chevrolet stock for shares in General Motors. And he became the majority shareholder in GM, wrestling his way back in as president of the company. But Billy's gambit did not last for long. He took General Motors perhaps as far as he could, but it was still a loose organization full of holes, and within a few years, there was an internal revolt. On a single day in 1920, 2.5 million shares of General Motors stock changed hands in a coalition bid to finally get rid of Billy Durant. His eventual successor was Alfred P. Sloan the former president of a company called Hyatt Rollerbearing, who had made millions when it was acquired by GM and a man that Billy Durant had promoted to vice president of GM. Sloan would lead General Motors for the next 36 years. Billy Durant had been a genius of acquisition, one might even say fearlessly so, but it was Sloan who masterfully integrated all of GM's various brands and holdings and created an industrial and corporate juggernaut. Sloan was an MIT graduate and then started his career at Hyatt Rollerbearing as a draftsman. When the company got into financial trouble, he convinced his father and another investor that he knew how to make it profitable. His timing was excellent because, unlike the wagon or carriage which relied on copious amounts of grease to keep a wheel turning on its hub, 
The motor car required precision mating surfaces on all moving parts. Sloan made it from draftsman to company president, and when Hyatt sold to GM, he took home $13.5 million. Sloan married but never had children. He was in his West 57th Street office in the General Motors building in New York, eight hours a day and worked several more hours at home each evening. He had no hobbies. He once bought a yacht, but it was only used a few times and it was sold for a loss. His only real pursuit was running General Motors. Among his innovations, the formalizing of the pricing structure with Chevrolet at the bottom and Cadillac at the top. The concept of a new model line each year within each division, of course with annual styling changes, and he created the styling section with Harley Earl as the first head of design. It was Harley Earl who created show cars like the Buick Y-Job, and he gets credit for the tail fin as a styling trend, first seen on the 1948 Cadillac. Billy Durant, ever the survivor, tried again to mount a car company, this time under his own name. Durant Motors followed his formula of multiple makes under one umbrella, and he did succeed in building cars, but sales were meager and the stock market crash of 1929 sealed its fate. But Alfred Sloan was not a tyrant. He duly recognized Durant as creator of General Motors and arranged for a comfortable pension for Billy and his wife, the equivalent of $173,000 per year. It was not enough for Billy. He chased other business opportunities the rest of his life, from bowling alleys to hair tonic to mining in southern Nevada in his 80s. After a prospecting trip there in 1942, Durant had a stroke and was left partially paralyzed. He tried to write his memoirs, but it became impossible. He died in March 1947 at 85 years of age, and he was too easily forgotten, I think. Alfred Sloan, whose career at General Motors began before Lindbergh had crossed the Atlantic and who retired at the dawn of the space race, died in 1966 at the age of 90. Along the way, he'd made the GM model of organization and management much bigger than just the auto industry, and his methods became required reading for junior executives everywhere. Durant and Sloan were giants, and they are the early story of General Motors. And that only covers the first 12 years of the company's history. So the next time you read a crazy story about Elon Musk and how Tesla investors are driven crazy, remember David Buick, Henry Leland, Louis Chevrolet, Billy Durant, and the others. The technology may change, but the story is nothing new. It still takes pioneers and idea men, claim stakers and bankrollers, and the future is still not for the fearful. That's all for this week's episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.